Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 286, Interview with S.E. Grove. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy literature. This is Sean Farrell, and hey, look at that, another show within a week. How about that, huh? Another uh, quick intro from me today. We will soon have a, uh, a full episode, I mean a, a full cast episode with me and Moses and Brent and a couple of guests in the coming weeks. So uh, in the meantime, we have these interviews that we've been sitting on for a little while. I just want to get them out so everyone can enjoy them before these books are no longer hot off the press. Today we're joined by S.E. Grove, who, uh, an author and a historian, discussing her novel, The Glass Sentence. Uh, it is a YA novel, but don't be fooled. Uh, lots of meat in here for adults as well. In fact, when you listen to this conversation, you'll think to yourself, this does not sound like something that uh, is written as a YA novel. So definitely uh, check this one out. Fascinating interview by Brent. Well done, Brent. Appreciate it as always. This episode is brought to you by Mission Flight to Mars by V.A. Jeffrey. Bob Astor is a quality assurance agent working at Barton, Inc. Lately, his days have been stressful, to say the least. Butting heads with upper management has put his career on life support. A surprising change in circumstances has Bob going on a business trip to the moon city, Langrenus. And on the way, he meets one of the delegates on board the Starbird, a desperate man with a dark past and a very dangerous secret. It's up to Bob, the burnout QA agent, to rise to the occasion and stem a dangerous tide coming from beyond the solar system. To learn more, come to the show notes, episode 286, and click on the image that you will see for Mission Flight to Mars by V.A. Jeffrey. Let's jump right into the interview with S.C. Grove. Thanks for listening. This is Brent Bowen. Folks, I have a wonderful treat for you. The power of Twitter. I asked... And we're going to receive the benefit of it. Our next guest is a historian, an avid reader, and world traveler. Her debut novel, The Glass Sentence, was released this this past summer. It was a New York Times bestseller, an IndieBound bestseller, a kid's next top ten book. So we're talking some good holiday fodder here for you folks. And featured by probably the most important recognition you could have could have received for, from this guest was uh, was featured by Nancy Pearl on NPR. I picked up this book this summer at my local indie bookstore. I want to thank Miss uh, Mysteryscape in Overland Park, Kansas. Got to recognize the local bookstore here. But without further ado, we have Essie Grove, or maybe more secretly to to certain <laughs> companies, Sylvia. Sylvia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, the power of Twitter. I was I I bought this book for personal enjoyment, and most of, you know most of the interviews I I do it you know it's through connections with genre and what have mm-hmm. you, and and you develop relationships. And I I absolutely just adored this book and start following you on Twitter. And you know, on a lark, I'm sitting there. I think I was watching Doctor Who. So you know what? I'm going to tweet. I'm going to tweet this Essie Grove and see if she'll if she'll come into the show. So thank you for respecting the power of Twitter. That's awesome. 
Oh, I'm, I, I'm delighted that it worked because the truth is, I, I will confess to you since I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not so undercover anymore as Sylvia here that I'm not that great a tweeter. I, I wish I were better. I try to learn from the example of others. So I'm really happy that in this instance it worked out. <laughs> Thank you for reaching out. <laughs> well, you definitely got this engagement right, we hope. So that, that, that's awesome. And I appreciate, okay. you being, appreciate you being on the show. Well, well, I mentioned the glass sentence. Let's, let's just jump right in and and what can you tell our listeners about it sure i'll I'll try to be brief in my description it takes place in 19th century boston in the late 19th century but it's not the 19th century we know about 90 years earlier there was an event that separated places from time and when the dust settled different parts of the world are in all different time periods so they're just as close to each other physically as they were but Europe is medieval, Canada is prehistoric, all these different places find themselves in different time periods, and so people can't connect with one another the way they used to. It's really kind of like a new world. So for Boston, which is in the late 19th century, a new age of exploration has dawned, and our protagonist is a 13-year-old named Sophia whose parents disappeared when she was young. They were explorers, and they went off to some place from which they never returned. She lives with her uncle Shadrach Ellie, who was a map, make, map maker, one of the most renowned map makers of, of the age. And map making, as you can imagine, is a very important pursuit in this new world. And so Sophia is just starting to learn the craft from him when he mysteriously disappears and the adventure begins. And you talked about the multiple locations and, and the varying ages, which is certainly a, a an appeal of the book, but you're uh, a Bostonian, mm. and uh, w- what about that core time period? Why, why 19th century Boston? What inspired you to explore it as the at least the jumping off point? Yeah, there's a there's a couple things at play there for me. One is that I, I I sort of love it aesthetically. I think a lot of people in our time are drawn to the 19th century. Well, we have a, a, several sort of echoes that that time periods that we're drawn to. But the other thing is that I really feel like it's the height of hubris in some ways, this, <laughs> this 19th century, the, the age of empires expanding. You know, some empires expand much earlier, but this is, the, this is the time period in which many empires grew to their greatest height. The U.S. as an empire was just sort of beginning to take off in our history. And I, I love that moment in which there's still this naive sense that the world is ripe for the taking, the, the kind of innocence that comes with that. Of course, it's a very dangerous innocence, as, as we know, the, there are incredible costs to that kind of thinking. But the innocence comes with this curiosity about the world that never looks the same after we learn in the 20th century about those terrible costs. And so I I really like this idea of having a 19th century Boston in which there's still this zeal for exploration, there's still this desire to get to know the world, and it comes with this, this sense that you can't, you can't go wrong. You know, you can't do harm just by venturing out into the world. So that's really the appeal about Boston. Okay. Excellent. And, and you speak about this cost and that was one of the things that I took from the book. I mean, you have mm. the ver- the varying age. Well, I wouldn't say that I took from the book, but as I was reading the book, I was sitting there thinking about, you have this book ostensibly about history. 
mm-hmm. and it has varying ages. And I'm a writer myself with some, you know, some background and in instruction about book. And anytime I'll ask one of my author mentors or I'm having a conversation with with other authors, we're always talking about the lessons that are provided of our time. Mm. So you have all these varying ages, both, you know, future and then we, so we, because we get a glimpse into the future mm-hmm, too, mm-hmm. through the book, and then we definitely have ages of the past with with nineteenth mm-hmm. century Boston, and it, it's often said a literary work is a reflection of our time. So mm-hmm. what a what about the the glass sentence? Because we don't see it through that lens or prism of contemporary. Yeah. What about the glass sentence? Do you believe speaks to today? Yeah, I think there are a lot of things at sort of different levels. It, let me sort of start with the biggest frame and then maybe get into specifics. But this is the first book in, in a trilogy, and I feel like the trilogy as a whole in some ways tries to address it's going to sound like so grand, especially for books for children. But, you know, as people, people like Madeline Lingle and Phil Pullman have said, if you, if you write a book and it's too complicated, then you have to aim it for children. You're completely butchering the quote, but you, you, you get the gist of it. The idea is that the, the big books are often written for, for children. So I'm, I, I tried to go really grand with this, with this concept, which is to really look at how how we shape the world, how human beings shape the world, and and really the imperial forces that have shaped the world in our history are are profound, and and it's just, it's profoundly disturbing for a historian to look at at how empires have uh, shaped the world in many pla- many ways for ill. But what I see in the, the shaping that makes its way into this trilogy is both the, the political side and, and the environmental side. I think those are kind of the two things. The way that we're shaping the world physically and the way we're shaping the human landscape as well. So to get it out of the super abstract stuff, for, for example, the glass sentence begins with a scene in which Parliament is thinking about closing the borders of their nation for, to foreigners because they're terrified of what foreign ages bring Mm -hmm. and I feel like that is a direct reflection of how we think it it could almost I didn't I I wrote it before the conversations on immigration this this summer but in some ways I feel like they really echo uh, all those conversations about especially Central American youth who are arriving in the United States there's that so such different such similar anxieties that make their way into our conversations that I think animate the the characters of of this book. Uh, And there's also concerns about the power that human beings wield in shaping and not shaping, a desire to be able to set boundaries um, when things are unknown, and at the same time, a sense that shaping things too much will have costs. So those are sort of the, the, the big things, and I feel like it makes its way into the book in, in small instances as well, like the immigration case. Yeah, and I, I saw that right away. I mean, as soon as you had that opening scene, it was I believe it was past the prologue in that opening scene, mm-hmm. and I saw some allegory of at least the discussion of immigration reform, and I went, ooh, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you have me. You have me hooked because there. This is not for children. This is this right. this lend some thought and discussion to some contemporary topics, even though you obviously have it have it set in the past. Yeah. What's interesting about the book too, and what he, I, I wanted to broach with you, you know, because you are a historian, and and mm-hmm. I've liked to have 
have similar conversations too with, again, some of my contemporaries and some of the folks that are my mentors. Is So what was interesting to me was you had, you know, Shadrick and even Varessa, who in each of the chapter openings, you have references. So they're, they're obviously well references to their works mm-hmm. and they're well-regarded historians. But, you know, so in the book, I thought that was interesting, but some of the best stories I found from a historical standpoint aren't in the songs themselves, but in the in the liner notes. They're in the mm. they're in the jackets. They're in the margins. What are what are from a historical point of view, even outside of the book, just in your life as a historian? What are some of the most interesting liner notes you've encountered? I feel like all I work on are liner notes. <laughs> <laughs> as a historian, I'm I'm way more interested in. You use the word marginal. That's that's exactly what draws me. I'm I'm much more interested in marginal peoples and places than I am in the characters that get the most attention. I understand that we need to, you know, under we, we need to know the history of the great presidents and stuff like that. But but they don't. They just don't intrigue me the way that other characters do. I think it's because it is so unknown. You know, you really feel like when you look at the past, there are so many types of experience that the written document cannot access perfectly and even other types of material history visual histories cannot cannot access so to give a specific example i i read i work mostly on an earlier period on sort of early modern history mm-hmm. and i like reading inquisition cases for okay. example from Spanish america and spain and you read in those cases about people who Sometimes, sometimes very well-known people were, were tried. There are more than a few saints who made their way um, before the Inquisition. But most of the people tried by the Inquisition are nobodies. And you get in these cases these incredibly sort of seductive transcripts of what they said. It's, I say it's seductive because their words are already to some degree transformed by the context they're in, you know, there's a scribe, it's a third person account rather than a first person account. We don't, we don't get to see them or hear their actual words, but it gives you the illusion of hearing these words from somebody in the 17th century trying to defend themselves in front of this prosecutor who is, you know, targeting them for witchcraft in a tiny town and, you know, this tiny place. And so those are the types of cases that I get really drawn into. I'm working right now on some cases relating to violence in the 18th century, uh, social violence. And I just, I mean, it's heartbreaking um, reading about some of these things, but it's also incredibly illuminating. It's not the sort of of stuff that makes its way into popular history books, and yet it gives us such a rich sense of the texture of people's lives, you know, how people, ordinary people really lived. When you say social violence, can you -hmm. you expand on that? What do you you mean by that? Yeah, sure. It's homicide, assault, in some cases, abuse. Um, And the reason I'm reading about this is not because it's fun and I enjoy it, but um, because I feel like it's uh, understudied and it's something that in particular for this period, it's, it's, it tends to get lumped together with history of violence 
done by the state. You know, we tend to think about wars and that the type of, I guess you, you could even think of it as official violence. And yet there's this other side of violence that takes place in the home, takes place in the street, and it's far less known. It's far less understood. And I feel like it's a very important dimension to people's lives. It's, it has a shaping force that we need to understand. So, yeah. Well, and even you juxtapose that with a lot of the contemporary discussion that's taking place around domestic violence. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. If you look at the, I mean, you look at any sports channel anymore, and there's discussion of particularly athletes mm-hmm. and domestic violence cases, which seems to bring or draw attention to at least the contemporary discussion. So that's 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 interesting. Yeah, that's right. And I think that in the past, it's it's a little too easy to say for the period I study. Oh, you know, because domestic violence certainly occurs. It occurs. It's just sort of part of a part of life, and to, and to move on and ignore it. And yet, that doesn't really allow us to understand fully what that experience was like. To just sort of brush it off as okay, we know it happened. So I really want to get depressing as it is. I really want to try to understand it better. Yeah, and how? What were the support systems? Were there support right. systems? How was how was that dealt with and treated? Interesting, very interesting. Well, remind me when we're done with this. I'm going to ask you about an Inquisition case. Okay. Uh, without good. without getting us too far too far in here, is there is there any one particular Inquisition case that was mm-hmm. really just compelling and you thought was interesting? As you studied, your your mention of Spain, and yeah. the Inquisition triggered uh, triggered something in my head there. So okay, sure, yeah. Well, there's there there's lots. I'm trying to think of a particular one that I can mention. Well, there's there's one. There's one that I that I know of that I think is really fascinating. Where I think it's it stands out because the the woman was not convicted, which is unusual, mm-hmm. um, and she was she was a woman of mixed race in 17th century Mexico, and she was accused of having seduced two different um, Spanish men of high standing and of, of having murdered one of them with witchcraft. And it becomes clear as you work through the case, this is a case another historian has, has worked on. So I've, I've read her work about it as well. It becomes clear that um, it's really just jealousy on the part of the families of these men, that this woman who is of mixed race background has worked her way into these men's lives and is really, you know, wielding control over them in a way that that they find (laughs) disturbing. And the astounding thing is that the way she defends herself in the case is very unusual. She says, it's not witchcraft. It's me. I'm intelligent. I'm beautiful. Of course they're going to do what I want. <laughs> it's, it's a very, classic case of seduction, people. I mean, come yeah, on. <laughs> I know. But she's she's a remarkable character. Most people don't, def- most women don't defend themselves this way. Most women sort of plead weakness and they say, look, you know, I, I maybe I used a charm or two, but it didn't, didn't mean anything. You know, I didn't mean any harm by it. This woman's like, no, you know, I'm, I'm at the top of my game. What do you expect? <laughs> Very logical approach there. Yeah. That's good. What are, yeah. It, very interesting case. Thanks for sharing. So just hearing, you know, our listeners will hear you hear you talk about examples like that, and it'll be no surprise when they pick up the book that mm. uh, that I absolutely adore. They'll probably feel the same way that I absolutely adored the world building of the Great Disruption and the magic system you employed with the with the maps. Thanks. Approaching this is a yeah. You're welcome. Definitely. When when you approach this as a as a debut novelist how did you how did you do it well really intuitively i can't i can't say that i sort of 
came up with a scheme and then tried to fill it or that I came up with a concept and, and tried to populate it. I, I think as we've just you know, been talking about being a historian, I, I really think this book emerged from my, what every historian and maybe a good deal of non-historians feel this desire to time travel. And yet, you know, you know, it doesn't work. And when it, when it happens in books, it always goes wrong. The machine always breaks. And I felt like I wanted a way to think about the past, an immersive way to think about the past. And that's, in some ways, that's where the whole concept of this great disruption comes about. I think it's also what informs the, the concept of the maps, the, these memory maps that are introduced early on in the book where Shadrach reveals to Sophia that he makes these maps that are basically pulling together all of the memories of people in a particular place and time so that the reader can immerse herself in that moment. And I really, I really think that that came about not as a, a concept first, but just as a, as a desire, as an impulse. You know, that's the historian's wish to sort of create this document that you can immerse yourself in and really see the past so vividly. So uh, I know that's not very satisfying. I wish I had a better formula for it, but that's where it came from. (laughs) That may have been the genesis for it, but did you encounter any challenges along the way, either in in the the construction of the magic system with the maps Mm. or or even the great disruption that that you had to navigate around? Yeah, definitely. I think... I think staying consistent is always a challenge, and it, it was a matter of sort of setting up my own uh, rules early on. One of the things that may have struck you, I, th- I think it's certainly apparent to many readers in the first book, is where where the future is, because as you say, we do see a, a, a glimpse of one future, but you have to wonder, why, why is it that there are no why does no one show up with a GPS navigator from like a different period? You know, there's, there's these preoccupations about where certain elements of the world we know are. Um, and I had to decide pretty early on how I was going to resolve that. There is a resolution that I won't explain that, that comes about in the second book that, that deals with that particularly, but more, more broadly, I, I think that my biggest decision, my biggest challenge was, I guess, technology. And my approach to it was to say, and I think this is true, I'm not just doing this to avoid the problem. I think our obsession with technology is is actually pretty, pretty uh, short in terms of the long span of history. I think that what looks to us like the inevitable trajectory of advancement is not going to look that way always. That Because our society is so technology-focused, it seems like that's the thing that is always the marker of advancement. But past civilizations did not did not measure their advancement by, technolo- by technological measures, uh, and I doubt very much the future ones will either. And so I, I resolve this by thinking about advancement in other ways, you know, getting beyond the whole technology thing and really thinking about culture. Okay. Excellent. And now you've just provided a teaser for book two. Well. So <laughs> right. that's, that's excellent. Well, well, let's talk about this concept of advance, advancement a little bit, mm-hmm. but I'm going to, I'm going to bring it to, instead of the macro focus, I'm going to bring it back to more Ooh. of a narrower focus. So I want to, I want to chat about Sophia a bit. How did you go about creating her as a character and what, I'm going to lead, lead the witness there a little bit as, <laughs> as a reader I was intrigued by your progression of one of her character traits. 
Mm. And a lot of I've seen a lot of other folks as they've interviewed interview you call it a flaw, but mm. I, I'm just going to call it a character trait. Let's yeah. let's chat about Sophia a little bit. Yeah. So Sophia. Sophia doesn't have an inner clock. She has a, what she thinks of as a broken inner clock. And I, I struggled actually with creating Sophia. I, in some ways I struggled with a lot of the characters because this book is very concept driven. And as you can probably tell, I, I loved creating the, the place. I get really excited about all the historical aspects of it. I, you know, I can spend a long time talking, thinking, thinking or talking about whether there would be trade with the United Indies on like this one thing. But really creating a story that's character-driven is what people find compelling. And in some ways, I think my first version of the book was like a this fun world with like a few vehicles with character names for them. So I actually really struggled to create characters that I thought were fully and convincingly anchored in this world. Sophia... Which I find, which I find hard to believe too, because you had one of the most complex villains, oh. probably empathetic villain, probably empathetic villains I've read in some time too, which was which was tremendous. So, oh, I'm glad. <laughs> as an aside, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that is very important to me. Like, I, I, I don't, I don't enjoy as much books that have the stark good and evil. I feel like that that Manichaean um, world is less appealing to me. I, I, I like villains that are relatable. So that was definitely a goal of, of mine. I'm glad it worked. Um, I, I, in some ways, I think all of them, Blanca, the villain included, all of these characters try to sort of amplify on a uh, trait or an element that I identify with. So it's not it's not quite so narcissistic as saying that all of them are me or anything <laughs> like that. But, but it is, you know, that all of them have something that I that I get, you know, there's something at the heart of them that I, that I, that I connect with and that I can build on as, as a comprehensible personality trait. So with Sophia, I think it's this sense of being someone who is observant and receptive to the world and, and perhaps confident in herself, but she's, she's definitely not like a, you know, one of these butt kicking heroines. And I, those, those can be very fun to read, but First of all, I have trouble identifying with that, and also it's also not very late nineteenth century. And so, when I was trying to develop her, I was trying to think about what would a young woman be like who is really of this time period, who could be who could be confident of her own abilities, but still reflect that sense of awareness that the world is much greater than you are, and that things are are big and scary, and not everything has gone your way. You don't have some of the things in life that other people have, like parents. So it was really just trying to imagine her as someone who was trying try to respect her limits, I guess, is what I was trying to do, Not rather than to create somebody who was this like perfect, perfect, sparkly heroine that everyone could cheer for necessarily. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. And I think you surround her, obviously, with a number of supporting characters that notion of making her true to her time mm. she needed a support system and you've obviously surrounded her with with a support system to get her through or help or assist her at least in several of those moments mm-hmm. although although at, at some point she still has to be alone but i, yeah. I think along the way it, it held very true and that yeah it does it does make sense yeah, oh i'm glad sense. thanks so yeah the you know the the concept with Blanca too. As I was thinking about about Blanca, was 
you know, I've, I've always heard that the best care, you know, the best villains are the heroes of their own story. Mm. And that, that, that very much rang true for me with, with mm-hmm. Blanca's characterization mm-hmm. for, so for someone that considered you had all this window dressing and no character, uh, I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. I'm, I'm glad. And I, I like that. I like that description. I, I do think she's the hero of her own story. And I feel like it's also, it's also that without giving away what, what happens, I think that it was really important to me to have a resolution with the villain that was not about like squashing the villain, which I feel like is often the thing that happens. And it can start to be a reflex that we don't question when we see it over and over again in so many forms. It's like, okay, you confront the villain and then you annihilate them in, in whatever form that takes. And for me, this I feel really strongly about kind of the power of empathy. In I know that sounds like uh, sort of like uh, inadequate in many situations, but in this situation, I wanted to present present a story in which really the 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 power that changes things is not a destructive one, but an empathic one, and that and so it, you can only have a villain of, of this kind for that to work. And it did uh, it, it did work. So earlier you mentioned the word narcissism, and we've <laughs> talked about the book a little bit. But I actually, because of your background and and the way your bio works out, I want to I want to talk about Sylvia a little. Bit. Sure. So, sure. and and we'll weave we'll weave the book back into this. I, I've okay. got a I've got a thought or two in mind of doing this. But you mentioned you're an avid avid traveler, so <laughs> I'm looking at this travel interest and the fact of your profession or vocation as a historian. And so I'm sitting there thinking, you know, for someone like you, do you have your own character trait or habit when you encounter a culture for the first time? What's the first thing you do to immerse yourself in a culture? Yeah, I, interesting. I Well, first, a confession, which is that I am while while perhaps avid, I am a much less active traveler right now because <laughs> I have a one year old, so I do a, a lot less traveling than I would like to. I, he'll he'll join me eventually, but but right now we're not adventure we're not venturing very far from. from sure. Home. But I think the thing that I find that immerses myself most. I'm not sure if it's the first thing that I do, but the most reliable thing is uh, to spend time alone somewhere and all of the most vivid vivid memories I have of, of places where I've traveled have been in situations where I sort of allowed myself to really be alone and not not because I don't enjoy other people's company when I'm traveling, I do, but I find that you're so overstimulated when you're traveling. You're like bombarded with so many things that the presence of someone else, it, it becomes this kind of anchor and it, it does for better or worse, and often for better, draw your attention away from all the stuff going on around you. And, and when you're by yourself, it, it's like you become this sponge. You just can't put up any barriers to all the things that are going on around you. And I'm thinking of, of some trips that I took where even if it was a few moments by myself pretty early on in the trip, changed the entire outlook for me because it was like I was suddenly fully, fully there with all my, my senses. Does that, you know, maybe that isn't what you meant. It's not like quite a step, step process, but no, no, no. Well, I think having the receptors on and I can, I can appreciate that. I I picked up some sensibility too, and maybe it's just the glutton in me. (laughs) There's a food there's a food yeah. component to your travels too that you appreciate, right. yeah. and I and I notice that's I notice that. What are you, what are some of your favorite eats? 
when you, when from from your travels? Well, favorite. Gosh, I've I've discovered a lot of different foods. Yeah, so what were you gonna say? Well, I was gonna say you notice in the book for yeah. for folks who read the book that Sophia has a pretty sophisticated palate mm-hmm. and, and some good culinary company. You know, at one yeah. point she's yeah. traveling with the chocolate maker. So yeah. I, I knew there was either a bizarre food story in in there somewhere. Right. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I definitely have a, some bizarre foods that I would count delicious and bizarre. I think the delicious <laughs> the delicious ones tend to blend together, as often happens. I don't know if it's the most bizarre food I've ever tried, but one of the most memorable was when I was in Mexico once when I was, I guess I was pretty young. I was still a teenager and my, my father very enthusiastically encourages to eat something called huitlacoche. And if you don't know what that is, it has the very unglamorous translation in English, corn smut, which is, yeah, it's a kind of fungus that grows on corn. And if you look it up online, you'll see that it is just as beautiful as it sounds. And it is a, a great delicacy in, in Mexico. It has been from pre-Columbian times. And, you know, I was I was hesitant, but my dad encouraged us. And I don't know if it was that or just something else we had that day, but I definitely got sick that day. <laughs> so it, it's lodged in my mind that la coche. But it is supposedly a, a great a great treat. One of, one of the things that I've really enjoyed is um, I do, as you could probably tell from the book, I'm a great caffeine drinker of all kinds, tea, chocolate, coffee. So I've definitely enjoyed trying all those things in different, different countries. Yeah, and I was going to ask you actually – Probably what, and you mentioned earlier, there, there were some things that had to hit the cutting room floor mm. with book one, whether it be historical or culinary. I'll, I'll let you have your pick of choice, but what's, what's, that, that's one of those things I know that authors, it, it's always part of the process. Yeah. You, you, have to, you have to leave a baby behind. What For you, which, which baby was it with this, with this debut? Oof, there were there were lots of babies because because it started out it started out as this this huge book I can't even remember about how much we cut it but suffice to say that you know when I first wrote this I wasn't intending on publishing it it was just sort of for fun and then when I showed it to my agent because I was sort of done with it she said yeah you know we can make a book out of this and then we revised it three times so she really helped me take an axe to it 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 must have gone down by you know it's at least. I don't know, two-thirds of what it was originally, and it's not a short book as it is, so there's a lot that got cut. But I think the thing I miss the most is that at the beginning, there was this scene where Sophia, and it was back when there were like other characters that no longer exist, but <laughs> Sophia went to this um, this Faneuil Hall in Boston, which is a, a real place, and it was the version of Faneuil Hall in this world. And it was—it's the time; it's the time market. And as you know, in in Parliament in this book, time is sold by the second. It's like a different model of of uh, speaking before Congress, and so time is monetized to a degree in New Occident, where all different varieties of time can be bought. And so Sophia goes goes early on in the book to this time market and there's all these different types of time that are being sold you know time with this time with spirits time you know all these different things like the playing with the idea it was it was almost more like a phantom tollboothy experiment with the the notions there but i do miss it (laughs) oh very cool 
very cool. Maybe at some point they'll let you write some short works or something yeah. off of the off of the world. That's very yeah, cool. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, very very cool. Well, I I can't wait for book two. Oh, thank you. Yeah, can't wait for book two, which is titled The Golden Specific, correct? That's right, yeah. And and I have to wait at least six long months, I believe. <laughs> I, I, I think I saw somewhere, I was looking at, uh, it's being pre-sold some places for the summer of 2015, correct? Yeah, it's out It's out in July. Uh, they're, it's a month later than last year, so yeah, it'll be out in July of 20, 2015. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so what can we expect from it? Well, I can say that we we reunite with Sophia and Theo, but in this story, they they sort of have uh, they sort of go in different directions. They they each have their own involved story. So we see a little bit more of Theo than we do in the first book. They have their own thing going on. They're both confronting different adventures that are connected, but we are but they're in different places. Sophia continues her search for her parents, um, which we, we get a sense of in the first book. And Theo is uh, reluctantly, he's reluctant, but he's forced to confront a figure from his past who has made his way into Boston. And so we, we get to learn a little bit more about Theo's, Theo's past. And, you know, I, I hope I hope it all hangs together. There's a lot of moving pieces in this book. There's a, there's a, I think it often happens with second books that you, you want to open things up for the for the second and third books and so I feel like in some ways this book just like throws everything up in the air. So there's a lot of moving pieces and I I, I hope I hope they'll all work work well together. <laughs> and, and we didn't chat a lot about Theo leading up to mm. that. So for mm-hmm. sake of background is yeah, yeah. Sophia's companion. I thought I thought how they came together was was quite an interesting tale. You mind expanding on Theo a little bit? Of course, sure. Yeah, yeah. Theo Theodore Constantine Thackeray, uh, full name. <laughs> he's a slightly older than than Sophia. She meets him early on in the book, where she sees him. He's a, a prisoner, basically, in a circus, a circus that shows people from all different ages, and. At a certain juncture early on in the book, she meets up with him when he's escaped at the, from the circus, and it turns out that he's from the Western Baldlands, this region that we would think of as the um, Western United States, maybe like uh, southern, so the Southwest, roughly in our geography. And he he's kind of a he's kind of a loner. He's grown up mostly by himself, and he has a, a, a little bit of a difficulty trusting people as a result he's a little bit difficult to trust but he's he becomes friends with Sophia and they they form this kind of uneasy friendship in order to travel travel onward and help find um, Shadrach Sophia's uncle so so he's he's definitely I think an important part of the first book but the story is almost always from Sophia's vantage point we don't get too much of it from from Theo's vantage point and so the shift in the second book will be that Theo's just as as much involved but we see things now more from his vantage point as well and you mentioned that Theo was a bit of a, a loner and was just learning through this book to, I think, engage with society and particularly yeah. so. And you, you discussed that uh, same character trait with you and Twitter, but I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to make you do this. So, okay. um, uh, where, you know, where, even though you're hiding out there online, <laughs> this, this book did quite well. Where, where can people find out more about you and your work and do not say this interview. I, I expect <laughs> some sort of other declaration sure. of place where they can find out more about you. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. I, I'm, I'm always happy to, to have people. I just feel, I, I wish I were better at, uh, at being out there myself and that's not deliberately hiding, but at, at, <laughs> at S E Grove books is my Twitter account and there you can find me and all, it's the same, same site for the uh, website S E And I try to keep that updated. I do, as you've seen, respond to, to people who contact me through Twitter. I, I feel like it is very convenient for that. I, and, and someday I'll figure, I'll get the hang of, of, of what I can say other than <laughs> go listen to my interview with, with Brent. <laughs> someday I'll figure it out. <laughs> Facto, factoids of your research would be interesting. Oh, Unique facts. That I think even yeah, even doing that on a periodic basis would be. I was going to about ready to say fun, but just thinking back to what you said, your research was. I'm going to choose interesting. Okay, all right. Yes. <laughs> be enga- it would be engaging. Um, <laughs> right. Any anything else, Sylvia, that you'd like to mention to, to our listeners that I may have missed? Oh, I think we've talked about so many great things. I, we've we've covered it all. I I really appreciate this opportunity to discuss the books at length, and and I really appreciate your your kind words about the first book. It's it's wonderful to hear your thoughts about it. Well, and I I can't for our listeners too. I mentioned early on in the discussion that the book came out this summer, just recently too. Before our discussion, I'm going to go a bit meta here. The, <laughs> the, even before we started our discussion, the audio book was mm. just made available in October. So I'll put that. Uh, in the show notes for our listeners and we were having a discussion around the narrator and the narrator is supposed to be fabulous so mm-hmm. if you don't want to pick out up the paper book or you prefer the audiobook the audiobook is supposed to be a great listen because what were you saying about it I think before we got on I mean, offered uh, it was incredible yeah <laughs> listening to it and I found myself wondering like wait what's going to happen next I just don't know she just has this remarkable ability to make it sound like it's coming fresh out of the air so it's really great well I read somewhere Sylvia that your your singular singular goal was to make history cool that's right yeah and I think I think you're accomplishing that so it was a real it was a real pleasure to speak with you tonight Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Likewise, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast.